Hey everyone, welcome to Hit the Apex Podcast. It's Juad here as always. Thank you for joining me this week amongst another Formula One doubleheader. How exciting. Already, what, eight, nine races into the championship after uh, the Canadian Grand Prix, which is coming this weekend. It seems like it's going pretty quickly. Um, and that's the scary thing is that, you know, as much as some of us complain, including myself, that, you know, 22 races or whatever we have this season is going to be too much, or, you know, 24, as might be the case next year, um, is too much. It's, we're already, you know, a chunk of the way through, you know, we've got the European races coming up, you know, Silverstone, Austria, French Grand Prix, Hungary, all within the next month or two, so... That's the scary part. It also is quite scary that uh, 2022, the year itself, is going quite quickly. I mean, we're sitting here in Australia. Sorry for that. I didn't realise my partner had just gone out to take out the trash. I'm like, did I shut that uh, front door by accident? Thought I might not have done that. So (laughs) apologies for that. Anyway, because I completely lost trail of what I was talking about. So um, yeah, anyway, we're we're almost halfway through the season. Another uh, twist in the championship, you could say, or a bit of a dagger through the hearts of the Tifosi after the Azerbaijan Grand Prix. It was maximum points for Red Bull, uh, with Ferrari faltering again, this time a double DNF with reliability issues and both kind of circling around the Ferrari power unit, it seems, which I'll delve into uh, properly a bit later. Talk a little bit about also um, my me looking forward to the Canadian Grand Prix coming back this weekend. It's been a couple of years now, obviously, with the pandemic kind of putting a halt to that for 2020 and 2019, and then also Supercars is on this weekend as well with Darwin Triple Crown. So talking about Baku, the not-so-bonkers Baku race this year, and, you know, when you have too many bonkers races at Baku, surely one's got to be not-so-crazy, and that was this year. It was very straightforward you know there was not a lot of drama happening we didn't even have a full safety car I think I think we just had a couple of virtual safety cars so that's quite interesting in that respect Um, Max Verstappen becoming the sixth different winner in Baku so that trend continues of a different winner every year and you know no one having repeat wins so far and you know there were odds on early um, in the weekend was that perhaps we could see Sergio Perez who won their last year win again and you know even go back to back this season with wins after his Monaco win but it was Max instead who cruised to that dominant win um Charles Leclerc the highlight of his weekend I guess the only thing you could really celebrate that weekend was his pole position fourth pole in a row for him and also the sixth of the season but it's becoming a bit of a trend now, isn't it, that, you know, Ferraris are fast on Saturday or Leclerc is in particular, but, you know, um, it just can't seem to convert convert to a result on Sunday. You know, his first two poles of the season uh, saw wins there in Bahrain and in um, Australia, here in Melbourne, but then the last four he's had, he's been un- unable to do anything. And in fact, I think only one of those races, he's actually finished on the podium, which was back in Miami. So um, not looking good for him, but still you can't fault his quality speed. It's been pretty good for him in that respect. Uh, the start of the race went pretty poorly for him too. He lost the lead going into turn one uh, to to Checo. We saw Leclerc lock up and... Um, felt like he was done and dusted in that respect because we knew that Red Bulls had good race pace and, you know, their uh, speed all weekend was being kept for the long runs and stuff. Um, So Checo went on to lead. He went a bit too hard on his tyres on the first lap, I think, just to build that margin. Like, I think at the end of the first lap, he was two seconds already ahead of Leclerc. So maybe he went a bit too hard in that first and. That's the thing, with Checo, hardly you can fault his um, efforts with tyre conservation, you know, he's probably one of the most uh, kindest drivers on the Pirelli rubber, yet, you know, he went a bit too, he got a bit too greedy in this sense, and kind of threw his own race off kilter as well with what happens later. We had the virtual safety car out on lap 10 with the other Ferrari, Carlos Sainz, coming to a halt at turn 4 later explained as a hydraulics failure, but 
this is the third DNF of the season for Science, and you know obviously this is not his fault, so we can't you know blame him or anything. Not that I want to blame Carlos or anything because I love Science. You know I'm kind of very you know I feel sad for him. What's what's going on at the moment? His form this season has not been what we saw last year. Obviously he finished ahead of Leclerc in the championship, and he took five podiums and. You know, he was the difference for me in that McLaren versus Ferrari fight last year is that, you know, Science was the key, he was consistent, and, you know, if he stayed at McLaren, then I can see him having taken McLaren to third last year in the championship, so that didn't happen, of course, he's at Ferrari, I'm going to keep saying it all the time because I do miss Science at McLaren, but that's another story, uh, but yeah, hydraulics failure on, on his end, third DNF of the season, uh, this opened up the race, though, strategically, uh, with the likes of Leclerc and others pitting early for hard tyres with the virtual safety car out. Um, the consensus from everyone else was the fact that this seemed a bit too early for a one-stop strategy, uh, which, you know, this race was easily a one-stop strategy if you um, went deep into the first in. But having had that virtual safety car and coming into the pits that early, uh, you were most likely going to have a second stop coming in later because you know uh, you know you would have to really conserve those hard tires and we know that Baku can kill tires whenever it decides to like we saw last year with Lance Stroll and, and Verstappen as well so no point risking um, one stop I like what uh, Lando Norris's engineer Will Joseph said about you know a dodgy it, you could either do a dodgy one-stop or, you know, a safe two-stop. So, you know, I, I'm paraphrasing here. I can't remember the exact line, but um, it was along those lines. Red Bull decided to stay out, though. I think this was important for them and their race. They had the race pace, and um, they didn't want to be pressured into a pit stop by Ferrari in particular. In fact, I think Red Bull kind of pressured Ferrari into pitting Leclerc at that time or to, you know, make that decision to... Uh, bring him in and get him on the hard tyres and see if that'll force Red Bull's hand, but that didn't um, happen in the end. We saw Max pass Checo on lap 15, so, you know, Max just had that ultimate race pace, you got to say. There was some talk as well that perhaps uh, Checo's car was more set up towards qualifying. A um, little bit of team orders coming on the radio too with, with Checo's engineer telling him, you know, not to, not to fight his teammate or whatever, so... You know, that's all good and fair, uh, you know, in terms of who had the ultimate pace on the day, it was Max, so I think rather than trying to risk what happened a couple of years ago between Ricardo and Verstappen when one rear-ended the other and both cars are out of the race, you know, it was fine to just let him through, but overall, in terms of the championship, Checo benefited from this race too, because he was able to jump up into second after the Leclerc retirement. So Max just was able to carry on into the distance. I think it was like 20 seconds or something he won by, something ridiculous. Uh, and that was all good for him. Uh, Checo, unfortunately, also had a slow stop when he brought in, He was brought in on lap 17. It was like 5.7 seconds. So that kind of threw him into the clutches of George Russell a little bit. Otherwise, Russell had a bit of a clean and um, boring race. But yeah, Max came in before Leclerc retired on lap 21. We saw Pluma Spoke coming out of the rear of that Ferrari and, you know, that was it. There's nothing else to say there, you know. It wasn't like he was having some fun, you know, on the Jays in the Ferrari. Not that, you know, you could go on it. 300 kilometers an hour, <laughs> light one up in the, in the car, but... Um, I don't even know where I'm going with this. <laughs> but yeah, so that was it for him, unfortunately. Another power unit failure. And all seemed to be happening since their upgrade that they brought in Miami. So now, people, I feel like, are getting a bit too carried away talking about power units and stuff at the moment. But 2022 marked the beginning of a power unit freeze until the new regulations come in in 2026. So no upgrades or updates are allowed unless they're on the basis of reliability, which they have to talk to the FIA about and get dispensation. So they can't do anything performance-related. So Ferrari introduced a power unit upgrade, I think, in Miami um, 
for reliability purposes, I think mostly to do with RMG UK, and this is what the problems have been with, not just for the factory team, but for their customer teams as well. We've seen Haas, you know, with a number of DNFs, and Kevin Magnussen, in fact, two races in a row has retired, well, was out in Monaco, now out in Baku as well with a power unit-related failure. Uh, Guan Yu Zhou has been very unlucky as well, but this his retirement that he had this time was not um, power unit or Ferrari-related. It was very much on the Alfa Romeo-Sauber side, but we'll get to uh, Joe Guan Yu later. But yeah, it's um, very puzzling, and you know, for Mattia Bonotto to come out and say that it's a bit concerning. On the same weekend, mind you, going back to the start of the weekend... He was saying things like, well, we're not actually in the championship. We, Our objective was never to win the championship this year. And that kind of caught my attention, the attention of others too. It's like, hang on, you've had two years of extra dispensation with, you know, like the fact that in 2020 you finished down in seventh in the championship or whatever and was able to get the extra CFD and wind tunnel runs Um and, you know, you've had all this lead time, you came into the power unit freeze or whatever with an all-new ICE and a completely different power unit philosophy or whatever that was going to put you on par with what Mercedes and Honda were doing at the time or Red Bull powertrains, whatever you want to say. And now you're saying that you're not in the championship battle. I thought that was a load of um, a load of baloney. But... Um, yeah, you know, it's not looking good for them, and I gave him an absolute roasting after Monaco with their strategic errors, so again, this is a sign of, you know, past weakness, you know, the fact that, you know, they make the same old mistakes, I don't think it's time to, you know, sharpen those pitchforks, though, um, and the question was asked when I was on the Grid Talk podcast after the race, um, about, uh, a viewer asked the question about whether it's time for Benotto to make way or whatever, and I said straight away, no, I don't think it's time to panic and make changes because that's what, you know, teams, when you look at any sporting code over the world, do when they just, they don't know what they're doing. And, you know, I could talk about NRL at the moment with, you know, certain coaches being sacked, um, and it's the same old story. You know, it's a merry-go-round where, you know, okay, you haven't worked out put someone else in, you know, and then the team still performs the same way. It's it's something perhaps, you know, fundamentally that goes above the team principal role or, you know, the engineers and the other personnel within the race team. Look at the organization as a whole, you know, what's what's to change if anything is to change. But I don't think um, Benotto can be faulted. In fact, I feel like Benotto has been a blessing to Ferrari over the last few years because... Uh, when you have someone who, like Maurizio Rubini, for example, who was very passionate and you got to see that passion quite a bit, um, sometimes it's not the best thing because, you know, when you have those bad days, it comes out hard on everyone else. You need someone a bit more composed and measured like a Benotto, same way Jean Todd was back in Ferrari's glory days, which everyone seems to want to recapture or whatever, so... I think it's not a time to panic, but the fact that, you know, this has happened again, they need to look into it, they need to understand why this is happening, and realise as well that, you know, because of these reliability problems as well, it's going to put onus on when a driver makes a mistake too, when it comes down to the championship. Now, I gave Leclerc a roasting after Imola, saying that was unnecessary, what he did um, in pursuit of, you know, what a faster slap point or whatever, when he could have just come home in third and that would have been good to minimize the damage but for them to have a 46 point lead over Verstappen and the rest of the drivers and to come into now being in arrears of how many points or whatever in the drivers championship and then in the constructors they're 80 points behind Red Bull now that is you know a catastrophic failure in this part of this season there's no sugarcoating it. So the fact that, you know, they've made these mistakes and now there's also the potential that they're going to have to take grid penalties later in the season or as soon as, you know, the next few races because they've run out of, you know, power units and whatnot, that's only going to derail their championship even further. And Red Bull, who started the season on shaky ground and they weren't as reliable as, you know, one would have hoped, they're 
looking bulletproof at the moment, but that could change too. But they're maximizing, you know, this phase where Ferrari are faltering and they've got, you know, the ultimate pace and reliability. So that's, you know, the sign of a good championship winning team. They're, they're, they've got their wits. They're playing it smartly. Ferrari, I don't know. I feel like I'll be, you know, have a few more greys and maybe in my 40s before they win another championship. I think that's an exaggeration given my age. Um, that's only, what, 12 years away. I don't think it'll be another 12 years before Ferrari are going to win a championship. But 2022 was supposed to be the year. And I know this can... I'm going to do a... I'll probably do a post-mortem at the end of the year. Or, and I'm doing it early by saying it you know, by saying this, is that 2022 was supposed to be their year, it was the year that they promised, well not promised, but like they indicated that 2022, new rules, new era for Formula One, completely clean slate, they're going to nail it, they have the resources, they've got all the tools at their disposal, yet it's just the same old mistakes they're making, so, you know, I don't know, what to say, like, I'm just going to keep saying it every week, you know, have this little rant every week when, when this happens, and saying that, you all know I'm not a Ferrari fan, I actually take pleasure in seeing them, you know, not win, or, you know, finishing behind, let's say, McLaren, you know, which it's not happening this season anyway, but um, I'm not a big Ferrari fan, but at the same time, I expect them to do more you know, it doesn't matter if I want them to win or not, they have that expectation on them to do well, and they need to, because they are one of those teams that are more well-off than others, yet they just seem to not be able to get it together, like, you know, Mercedes and Red Bull have over the last decade or two. So, there was the Red Bull, 1-2 finish, behind them, another top five, another podium for George Russell, and like I said earlier, he had a bit of a lonely race and uh, kind of no trouble about it, you know, he's been having a lot of these lonely races lately, uh, lonely races, yeah, lonely races, sorry, <laughs> lately, that's, that's a bit of a tongue twister, lonely races lately, um, except for in Barca, Lona, when he got to deal with Max Verstappen a little bit, which he conducted himself very well, really, you know, this season has... Um, not changed my opinion of George Russell, but it's kind of validated, you know, what I wanted to see, like, at Williams, it was great what he was doing, but I wanted to see him validate his place at Mercedes by showing those performances, there's one thing, oh, you know, he's great in a Williams, he deserves to drive a Mercedes, and then he comes to Mercedes, and then does, doesn't live up to that expectation, he's exceeded that expectation, so that's really good, but George, Talking about the championship and um, uh, Leclerc, Russell is now 17 points behind Leclerc, and Leclerc was a championship leader by almost 50 points going back, you know, a few rounds, so could we see an upset there? And I think, you know, that might not be likely, but if George continue, continues to put in these performances and can be in finishing top five, top six every race, and depending on Mercedes' reliability as well, I can totally see this being pulled off. Same being said for Mercedes in the Constructors' Championship, like I alluded to last episode as well, that, you know, they could easily overhaul Ferrari. Um, we saw an epic drive from Lewis Hamilton to overcome the severe bouncing problems that he's had all weekend. I know it's been uh, talked about quite a bit since uh, the race with the images of him having to, like, hovel out of the car and, you know, talking about his back and everything. And not only him, but drivers like Daniel Ricciardo, Carlos Sainz, and Russell as well, talking about the porpoising as being an issue. Um, but Hamilton put in a very, very heroic drive, and for P4, I think, is important. It might not be what he's used to, driving to the front and winning the races, but as far as what I talked about last week and, you know, Mercedes' expectation of finishing second in the championship potentially but also for Hamilton to you know it's time to go for the team player role not that he wasn't a team player in the past but he's not fighting for a championship this year he can be helping the team putting these performances in for the team so that they can finish as high as they can in the championship so I think this weekend was positive in that 
Um, he benefited as well from the second virtual safety car on lap 35 to get that second pit stop in and get himself ahead of the likes of the Alpha Tauri, Sebastian Vettel, Fernando Alonso, who all got stuck on the one stop and then they were able to, uh, they weren't able to get much out of their tyres at the end there. I mentioned the intense physical pressure. And it's, uh, you know, something that has been compared to drives by Ed Senna, for example, in 91 in Brazil when he didn't have the gearbox or he didn't have fifth gear, sixth gear, whatever it was. You know, it's definitely up there and to be able to sustain that and to overcome it is really, really good and, you know, shows where Hamilton is as an athlete. He's also no spring chicken at the age of 37. So, you know, it's understandable that, you know, it's probably impacting him a lot more than someone like George Russell, who's in his early 20s. But what I will say, though, about the whole purposing um, debate and whatnot is that it's up to Mercedes to try and engineer a solution, not the FIA, you know, this issue is, let's say, a side effect of the new regulations that not every team is suffering from or are not suffering from as intensely as, say, Mercedes, Ferrari. The Ferrari is still, you know, quick. They're still up there or whatever. They're able to get pole position. They're able to still win races, um, you know, when they can. So when you hear people talking about the fact that, you know, Formula One needs to change the rules or they need to address this, that's a bit, you know, that's like, well, that's a kick in the guts to the teams who have um, actually done done it correctly and able to engineer a solution. Isn't that what Formula One's about? The greatest minds in automotive engineering or in engineering in general to be able to, you know, come together at the pinnacle of racing and find ways of being quicker and more reliable than each other. I feel like, you know, a lot of people are stuck in the past, you know, with with F1 and be like, oh, you know, if I talk loudly enough, they'll change, you know, it for me. No, the simple answer is no. As much as it sucks to see you know, Hamilton in this situation or whatever, and, you know, the fact that I've had friends message me um, saying, oh, you think uh, Hamilton is, uh, Mercedes told Hamilton to put on an act or whatever to make it look bigger than it was, I'm like, in a in a, in a humorous sort of context, where when it comes to in-jokes and memes and whatnot, yes, or sure, like, let's, let's say that, but talking seriously, what a load of rubbish, you know, that that would be, I mean, I know there is a whole political side and these guys will do whatever it takes to get an advantage, but I think it's a load of rubbish. Um, it's not up to the FIA to hand out a concession to people who haven't been able to get it right, let alone eight-time world champions, constructors world champions, who've also, you know, got more money or more resources, I should say, because money, we know we're in a budget cap or whatever, but they've got more resources, they've got the better, they're supposed to have the best minds if they're the best team. They should be able to figure out a solution, and if it, you know, involves sacrificing performance for this season, then do it, you know? That's just, that's my way of thinking, you know? I'm no Toto Wolf, I haven't won eight Constructors' Championships, you know? <laughs> except for on, you know, the Formula One games or whatever, but that's, you know, I just drive the car in that game with, with a bunch of assists too, so I'm really not doing much. Um, but, yeah, you know, it's something that I don't like seeing when people are like, oh, you know, just, just you know, they need to change the rules. It's all Formula One's fault. In fact, I saw or read something, you know, the other day that said the FIA and F1 knew months before the cars hit the track for the first time in testing that this would be an issue or whatever. But it, again, it's up to everyone else to figure out how to um, engineer around that, even though it's not a problem that would be seen in the the wind tunnel and, and the testing that they do off-track simulator work and all. That's, that's the term I was looking for. So, yeah, it sucks for the drivers and, you know, feel got a feel for them for their long-term health and well-being and everything but it's the teams who need to turn around and 
take ownership of the negligence that's going on there, not blame it on the on the FIA or Formula One in that instance. So yeah, that's my little rant on the porpoising thing done. Um, behind the, the two Mercedes, we had Pierre Gasly fifth at last. You got to say for Pierre because he's not had a good run this season, and you know I think this is the best uh, haul of points that Alpha Tauri have scored since the Australian Grand Prix. Um, Yuki Tsunoda avoiding a black flag for this dodgy DRS fix that his team conducted. So, um, his DRS, you know, half the flap kind of opened, um, on one side of the rear wing, uh, they had to bring it in and to see the team pull out gaffer tape and try to fix it with that was (coughs) a funny, but also very like, mate, this is formula one. This is supposed to be the best or the highest end of, of motor racing in the world, and using gaffer tape, I use gaffer tape to fix the the ripped carpets at, at my work, which, you know, again, is not a very good solution for that, but it, it kind of, like, given that this was also the weekend, the Le Mans 24 hours on um, race tape, you know, it's a very Le Mans thing, but obviously in F1, it's not A, funny, B, the right thing to do, given the fact that, you know, there were such strong wins on race day, plus they're going at such speeds down the main straight that if that piece flew off or whatever, it could have hit somebody, seriously injured somebody, um, could have, you know, like hit another car, for example, and yeah, it would have been game over. So it was quite interesting, though, that given the fact that they put out a black and orange flag and they seem to have ignored it, um, I would have thought that would be an instant disqualification or, you know, um, black flag. But I don't think there was any sanctions that came from it even in the post-race. So that's quite interesting about that. Um, Sebastian Vettel, unfortunately, cost himself P5. It would have been a great weekend for Seb. Um, and his good run at Baku would have continued. But he made a bit of an error when he was fighting Esteban Ocon at some point in the race and ended up going on at one of the corners and had to do a bit of a U-turn, but still, six for him is great, it's the best result that Aston Martin have had so far this season, um, to finish in the top six, so can't give him enough praise when you look at where his teammate was, well, he didn't even finish the race, so, you know, there's no point going there with a strong junior, but for Seb, it was great, and, you know, really um, great to see what they're doing at the moment with Pride Month as well and Seb just being such an ambassador and an ally to that cause so um he's doing a lot at the moment and you know it's hard not to you know it's hard to not love him you know whoever you are like I know the people who don't love him they don't really matter at the moment or ever you know we don't need that sort of negativity being brought into this space but yeah good on Seb for doing that and he's still got the goods on track which is good to see as well um, at a circuit that he's done pretty well in in the past Fernando Alonso behind him in seventh of course being a bit of a train again at times but um, also they had the straight line speed did Alpine to keep the McLarens ahead as well so we had Daniel Ricciardo finally in the points which was good to see started on the hard tyres and they had a good strategy for him but there was a bit of friction between him and his teammate Lando Norris um, about Ricardo not letting him pass especially in the final stint there where Ricardo switched over to mediums who thought that he would be quick at that point and quick enough to get past Alonso but when that didn't happen and he chewed into his tyres a bit much and couldn't get the most out of the car, you had Lando bottled up saying, I'm much quicker, let me through, let me through, and then um, the team, by the time it would have been engineered, the time in the race ran out, so then we couldn't see what would have happened if it all came to pass, but at the end of the day, it was good to see McLaren score points with both drivers, Um, Lando still had the measure of Daniel this season, By no means is this, you know, Daniel off the hook as far as, you know, the scrutiny that he's under. But it's good to see the way he's approaching it is a lot better than some drivers would. I'm sure internally he might be feeling some things. And that's the thing, you know, when I've written up a piece which I haven't yet submitted for publishing because I'm like, oh, is it, am I 
you know, bashing him too much. Like, I mean, the opening line says it's it's painfully distressing to admit this. And, you know, that's kind of like me sitting there crying, writing, the, oh, you know, I don't want to, like, I don't want to say these things about Dan, but also, like, from a team perspective, it is really hurting them. And, you know, you want to know when to cut your losses and, uh, try and look elsewhere, but, um, he says that, you know, he's not as far away as you think, or people think he is from getting good results, I think this is the time of the season where, you know, coming into races like Canada, Silverstone, which he's done really well at, Hungary as well, um, he's got to get the results out of the car, and, you know, when, when we go back to Monza in a few months' time as well, scene of where they won you're going to expect him to do well so whether that's going to be enough for him to retain his seat for next year remains to be seen I mean he's still got that contract which is important but you know as Zach Brown said coming into Monaco is that there are mechanisms in on both sides so you know Daniel might realize that he's had enough but I keep saying I keep maintaining as much as the the drums are beating and whatnot and that I've been critical at times too I maintain that I want to see him stay and I want him to see out the contract and also to just succeed, you know, make this work or whatever. And then we can assess everything in the future. Um, if it doesn't go so well, um, we'll talk about it all then. Um, final point went to Esteban Ocon. So again, Alpine with their uh, good speed here. Good to see that they've got some double points under the belt. They are still quite far behind. Uh, McLaren in the Constructors Championship, or not too far behind, what is it, 18 points, which could be turned around quite quickly, but they've established themselves ahead of the likes of Alfa Romeo and Alfa Tauri, um, but it's good to see Alonso in form and being able to score some points too, uh, the guys who missed out, of course, Valtteri Bottas, you know, not much default in his performance over the weekend, uh, just the fact that the car wasn't there, Alex Albon too, you know, just didn't have the car, he did well to jump up from where he started in qualifying, he gained a couple of positions on the start as well, he was down in 17th, so there you go to finish 12th, especially with some retirements behind two, Mick Schumacher having a bit of a clean weekend, which was needed really, given the questions being asked by his team boss earlier in the week and after Monaco, um, and just people in general, you know, they we all want to see Mick succeed, but he... You know, the fact that he had this reputation of when he's in the junior formulas, it's his second season that he really excels and he goes on to win the championship. Knew that that's not going to be the case this year and a half, but it would have been the year that he would step up, he would score points, you know, he would be ahead. And like, given the fact that he's got a new teammate, a much stronger teammate as well, to be measured against it's all been in Kevin Magnuson's favour, and that's what um, is a bit distressing looking at um, the way that Mick has performed, but to be able to just finish the race and be in the points, you know, I guess it is important for his confidence, and yeah, you know, the questions will be asked until he starts putting in those performances that, you know, we see K-Mag doing and being able to score some points too, so yeah... Looking ahead then to the Canadian Grand Prix, as I said earlier, good to see Montreal return after a two-year break. Um, it's one of my favourite races, and has been for quite some time, you know, falling in love with it from the 2011 uh, race, the wet one, which I actually survived, given the fact that, you know, and, you know, everyone, a lot of people say we survived the Canadian Grand Prix in 2011, but um, a spare thought for those living on this side of the world here in Australia or New Zealand, where, or New Zealand, I guess, is always a bit kinder with their times because it's, you know, it would have been, what, 6am, um, it's a lot more palatable than 4am as it was for me, and for the race to then go until like 8 o'clock in the morning or 9am, Still such a satisfying conclusion with Jensen Button winning that one. Um, what I am sad about this year is, though, that uh, the Queen's birthday public holiday, and I know some people not in this country will be confused when listening, saying, what, why is the, why do you have a public holiday for the Queen's birthday in the middle of June? 
yeah, we, we have that. <laughs> Quite funny, too, given that it was a week after the Jubilee ce- celebrations that they had in the UK um, two weeks ago. But, yeah, sad that the Canadian Grand Prix didn't line up with the Queen's birthday public holiday, um, which made it often so much better to watch because the fact that Monday morning when the race was on, wouldn't have to go to work afterwards. But, sadly, that wasn't the case this year. The Queen's birthday was on the Monday just past, so after the Baku race. And Baku was a race that started so much earlier than all the other European races do. So the fact that I had a free day off, public holiday after one of the earlier starts rather than one of the later starts was was annoying but anyway we'll live you know still we'll watch the Canadian Grand Prix this weekend um one of the big talking points will be again the porpoising issues they're going to be exaggerated here on the straights because um Canada is very much a power circuit and not going to repeat my rant from earlier but yeah it's up to the teams to to get on top of that rather than whinging to the FIA to make concessions um with a Canadian-specific focus, uh, talking about Nicholas Latifi, I didn't mention him earlier with the review for uh, Baku, but rumours going around that this might potentially be his last race for Williams, uh, which you know will be apt given that it's his home race and the first time he will have his home race as well, um, with Oscar Piastri coming in to replace him from Silverstone onwards at Williams and it was kind of made even more uh given a bit more hype when Piastri himself put out this cryptic Instagram story of uh Silverstone pit straight or whatever and him saying you'll be seeing me here soon or something like that you know I know he's at the moment doing some testing in an hour in a year old Alpine or whatever but um could he potentially be making his big break into F1 come the British Grand Prix, which would be also serendipitous given the fact that um, Daniel Ricciardo in 2011 made his Formula 1 debut at the British Grand Prix when he was brought into HRT. So um, following a similar trajectory there as Ricciardo starting off with uh, um, one of the backmarker teams midway through the season. Um, and yeah, like that'll be good, you know, having Oscar on the grid finally. Um, and at least shore up where he stands for next year. But again, for Latifi, big disappointment. I know more people. I know there's people out there. Sorry, I should say that are more critical on him than I am. I feel like he is one of the good guys. Not that that. Um, not that that kind of matters when it comes to your on track performances or whatever. But um, you know, he had the chance this year to show his performance and whatnot to be able to shore up his future, but he hasn't really done himself any favours. I really thought that after last year, being able to score some points on a couple of occasions with Williams, that he had turned a corner and that we would see a consistent Latifi, but this year we really haven't seen that. You know, he hasn't got to grips with this uh, 2022 car. Alex Albon has been on top nearly every session and whatnot, and, you know, he's got the points in the bag already, so I think, you know, given the fact that Williams indicated last year even that they no longer need a driver who's going to bring in funding or whatever, the fact that, you know, Latifi even got this season was purely down to merit, but then he's not really doing himself any favours for next year, so, you know, as sad as, um, you know, it is sad that, you know, he's going to miss out and whatnot, but that's just the way the cookie crumbles, and, you know, a lot of people will go back to the F2 days and say, well, Latifi's not a driver that I would have put in F1 in the first place, I would have said the same thing about Yuki Tsunoda, but we've been proven wrong. <laughs> um, so yeah, good, good um, will be good for Oscar if that happens, but we'll just have to wait and see after this weekend. Uh, talks as well, Stefano Domenicali, CEO of F1, of course, in talk with people from uh, South Africa and Kialami for return of the South African Grand Prix, potentially as early as next year. So if that happens, that'll be great. You know, of course, back in Melbourne, heard Lewis Hamilton say that he would love to see a race in Africa. I keep saying, talking about the World Championship and the fact that, you know, there's no race represented on every single continent, not that we're going to get one on Antarctica. Um, but the fact that, yeah, Africa isn't represented, it would be nice to see that I don't know, someone said something about, it might have been a mate of mine who uh, 
said, you know, how about a race in Egypt? Do a street race, you know, with the pyramids in the background. You know, that would be quite cool. Not that that sounds very sustainable, but um, yeah, you know, the fact that if we go to Kialami, that'd be great. And Kialami is a friggin' great track as well, if anyone's ever, you know, driven it on, on, on games and stuff. I, I really love it on Assetto Corsa. So if they do bring that over to um, F1 for 2023, I'd look forward to driving it on the F1 23 game as well. So good to see those traditional circuits being looked after more than, you know, bringing in another 10 street circuits, which are pretty boring in my eyes. But the tracks that look like they will have to make way, um, and it's not yet confirmed, but the likes of Spa, uh, the French Grand Prix looks done and dusted. Monaco still up in the air as well. If there's going to be a maximum of 24 races next year, um, and the fact that Chinese Grand Prix is still it has still got a contract to come back, you know, depending on what the situation is there. I feel so silly now. I know in my pre preseason predictions for Grid Talk, and at least I'm being honest about this. I said that the surprise of the year will be the fact that we get the Shanghai uh, circuit back on the calendar this year to replace Russia. So wrong I was, <laughs> given the situation going on in, in China at the moment. So um, just, just you know, I put it out there, but, you know, let's kind of put it under the, put it under the bed or whatever. So, yeah, they've got, they've got their contract there in China. Also, Qatar is set to come in next year as well. They started that 10-year deal that they've got with Formula One. So, you're looking at a lot of races potentially dropping off and, Part of those three, Monaco, France, and, and Spa. Spa kind of cuts me because I love Spa as a track overall, but, you know, the fact that I see other categories, you know, such as WEC, uh, Spa 24-hour as well, with the GT race, I can kind of get around, not F, F1 not being there because we get more entertaining endurance races there. Le Castellet, I really, you know, it looks impressive visually. It's not a great track. It's a testing track. So I'm not as cut about it. And Monaco, you know, it's not a great track to race on, as I've said. But, you know, there's that whole spectacle side of it, you know, from from the jewel and the crown perspective. But if it got cut for, like, next year, for example, and then they came back a year later after making some changes to the track, then, yeah, I'll, I'll be fine with it. But, yeah, it's more spa that I'd be cut about amongst those three that are looking for the chop. So let's bring it over to supercars now. That's it for F1 talk. And we'll start our supercars talk about uh, with the 24 hours of Le Mans. How does that all work? Well, I'll tell you. It's Shane Van Gisbergen that ties the two together because uh, Gizzy got to make his Le Mans debut finally. It, it, it feels like, you know, he's been there before, but he hasn't, in fact. It's his first time he's been able to go there to Le Mans. So good to see him in the GTE Pro class. Uh, rest in peace, GTE Pro as well. Um, without getting too much into that, uh, those who know about it will know. Um, and yeah, quite did quite well to finish top five, of course, for the Riley Motorsports Ferrari, alongside Sam Bird as well. And I can't remember their other co-driver, how very poor of me to not do my research on that sorry to the third driver in that ferrari um apologies anyway um good 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 24-hour race uh this year toyota going on for their fifth consecutive win or their fifth win in total i mean that was a given unless reliability was going to hurt them um alpine uh, who was one of the hypercar contenders you know dropped out early like someone crashed not even on like on the first lap at the first corner of a 24-hour race like come on like that's such poor form um and then you had the glickenhaus cars finish their third and fourth and then yeah a bunch of uh good competition amongst lmp2 and also the gte am class which so good like i was supporting um the like 90 the 93 porsche in gte am uh, Matt Campbell obviously in there, love Matt Campbell, but also 
Michael Fassbender, um, Magneto actor, but also uh, Prometheus and other films. Uh, Shame is a good one if you haven't. I know this is not a film podcast, but now I'm going to talk about films that Michael Fassbender has been in that I really enjoyed. Shame was another good one as well for some method acting if you want to see that. Um, but yeah, you know, you guys probably mainly know him for Magneto, Magneto and also David in um, a Prometheus and Alien Covenant. Prometheus underrated film by the way if we're on that discussion um yeah he got to make his Le Mans debut too and it's been so good like this is the best thing one of the best things that I was watching during lockdown the last couple of years was the Journey to Le Mans series on the Porsche um YouTube channel about Fassbender actually doing it the right way and not just like rocking up a Le Mans in his big Hollywood boots or whatever like I'm gonna you know be racing driver now because I feel like it he actually did ELMS for a couple of seasons didn't have the greatest time but he kept trying you know and it was good to see the improvement that he made in the second season with the likes of uh, Ricard Leitz coming in experienced Porsche driver um, and you know Felipe Lazar as well who's been uh, on Fassbender's side since the beginning um, so good to see that team together and for yeah him to finally break through and to make that Le Mans debut I seriously hope he comes back for years to come you know because we saw Patrick Dempsey do it and we see Patrick Dempsey every year at Le Mans you know the passion is there like my partner loves Grey's Anatomy and she's you know I'm sure she'll be surprised of how much I love Patrick Dempsey not for Grey's Anatomy but for um for his commitment to Porsche and partnership with Porsche and and with Le Mans as well so it's very good to see I know we're supposed to be talking about supercars but I got carried away talking about Michael Fassbender and and film and Le Mans and everything but yeah I get I get a bit giddy about Le Mans every year and I was glad to watch a considerable chunk of it except for when when I was asleep <laughs> um I watched the start there before back in qualifying and got to watch most of the end of the race too um supercars is in Darwin this weekend the triple crown I wish I was in Darwin because it's freezing cold down here in Melbourne but uh, Darwin is going to be what 30 degrees temperatures in the 30s all weekend you know that's that's kind of what I want um the triple crown is awarded to the round winner these days rather than you know the individual feats of um winning i think the sunday race pole position fastest lap or something which scott mclaughlin did back in 2019 or whatever is one of the only drivers who have achieved it that way um it's a combination of three 38 lap sprint races this weekend so that's i think the same format that they had last year split with um three different qualifying or two different qualifying sessions so we have a split three-part qualifying on saturday for race 16 and then the two 10-minute sessions on sunday for the individual races that we've got on uh, sunday races 17 and 18 um also the first race this year that we've got the super soft tire coming into play the new super soft tire compound from dunlop so given the fact that the Hidden Valley track usually doesn't have a lot of degradation, hoping that the super soft tyre is going to bring some entertainment, and with the warmer temperatures as well, um, and yeah, you know, it's 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 important um, as well for the fact that supercars have actually made it the official indigenous round of the championship, and I... Am very much an advocate for this. I see it in other sporting codes as well in Australia, um, the AFL, the NRL having an Indigenous round. I know the uh, cricket teams as well, both men's and and women's, have like Indigenous jerseys that they wear too. And it's such an important thing for supercars to acknowledge. Um, putting it out there as well that I don't see a lot of diversity. You know, I don't see a lot of indigenous involvement in supercars or you know diverse involvement when it comes to the driver front you know certainly for teams and engineers and what's going on in the background it's there and sometimes they don't always see that but yeah you know i feel like it's important for a premier category like supercars which then is seen across the world as well by so many motorsport fans to acknowledge you know um 
the importance of, you know, the Indigenous culture here and, you know, given the fact that in recent times it's becoming more and more prevalent, it, it's quite important. So I'm really loving the liveries that we're seeing uh, pop up that most teams have adopted. Also, the safety cars have adopted them as well and the medical car, which is really good to see. Um, local artists and Indigenous artists coming together and putting their... Uh, you know, their culture and heritage on these cars is, is really good. So, yeah, you know, be respectful. And, um, yeah, if you want to if you want to learn about that sort of thing, then please, you know, go for it. There's all sorts of information out there and it's really important um, to acknowledge that. Um, some of the big talking points, I guess, is Shane Van Gisbergen going to win every race? That's a talking point every Supercars weekend, isn't it? <laughs> um, we're talking about contracts and stuff. Will Davison, his future is in question, of course. Um, he's actually said recently that it's going to be all sorted soon. Um, likely that he's going to stay put there at Shelby Power Racing, at Dick Johnson Racing. But there's also been talk of the fact that they want to put Will Brown in next to Anton Di Pasquale, which would be great, you know, given the fact that, you know putting two young runners in together like they haven't been the greatest this year djr um and then they were very much off the pace there in winton so given the fact that they've had so much success at winton in the past um hopefully they can recapture some of that form this weekend i said i think you know after winton in fact which was almost a month ago maybe it was more than a month ago that David Reynolds and, and Penrite Racing, Grove Racing, they've been so consistent and given the fact that um, Reynolds does pretty well around Darwin that he could be on for a win here. I wouldn't be surprised if he did win a race, so um, he'll be one to look out for. But yeah, we'll see. And given the fact that, you know, this is the only event for supercars in June um, with the next event and Townsville uh, the Townsville 500, I should say, I actually put in my notes a super sprint, but it's actually the Townsville 500. Won't be until like mid-July or whatever, you know, it's um, going to be good to see a bit of supercars before going on hiatus again until the next round in July for Townsville. But yeah, that pretty much wraps this one up. So next week, we'll be back to review the Canadian Grand Prix and also talk about the Darwin Triple Crown. Until then, thank you very much for tuning in. Thank you so much for bearing with me. Hope you guys enjoy your weekend. Um, as always, giving a big plug to the Grid Talk podcast by F1 Chronicle. Please check them out. The links are always in my description. Um, so good of them to have me come on and guest as well. And hopefully I'll be on there again sometime soon. But um, until then, keep an eye out on socials at Hit the Apex Media on Twitter. Um, you can look at my link tree as well to all my other links. But yeah, I'm out of breath. Have a good night. Thanks, guys.